Good morning. Uh, my name is Matt Luloyan. Uh, if we've never had the chance to meet, um, would love to fix that even today. Today's even a, a, a great day to do that with the picnic in the park after church. Uh, it's an honor and privilege to have you here with us, regardless of why you find yourself here this morning. Uh, we realize that in the summer we have uh, folks that are home from campuses around the the uh, nation and even the world at times. Uh, we have some people that you know get dragged to church on Sunday mornings. We have some people that want to be here willingly. Uh, whichever category you fit in or one of the ones I maybe didn't mention this morning, it's just an honor to have you with us uh, for a few moments uh, this morning. If you have Bibles, uh, go ahead and turn to Daniel chapter 6, the very end of Daniel chapter 6. If you're using one of those black hardcover Bibles uh, that Caleb mentioned, uh, it's page 744 in those. Most likely, all of you have heard a phrase, are familiar with a phrase called the powers that be. The powers that be. This is a phrase that's part of our vernacular, part of our lingo as a people and has been for longer than any of us have been alive. What does that mean? When we say the powers that be, what does that mean? It's really an impersonal way of talking about people who are in positions of power, people who are in positions of influence in a particular realm. So if we wanted to talk about a government, we wanted to talk about political leaders, but not refer to specific individual people by name, we might just say the powers that be. Or in a company, an organization, we might refer to the leaders, the upper management of a business as the powers that be. Or maybe we might even use it to talk about these impersonal kinds of forces that we can't even really explain or understand fully, like the media or fate or something like that. We might refer to any one of these things or all of them cumulatively as the powers that be. I don't know if you've ever thought deeply about that phrase, probably not, but that phrase is actually exclusively used in a negative way. Sometimes derogatory, but always negative in some way or another. So if you think about it, you probably never heard that phrase used to say something like, I'm so happy with the powers that be. I'm so thankful for what they're doing. The powers that be are just nailing it. You don't hear it used that way. But if you trace the origin of that phrase, you know where it comes from? You know where the phrase comes from? It actually comes from the Bible. It actually uh, specifically comes from William Tyndale's 1526 translation of the New Testament. So William Tyndale uh, was one of the first people to translate the scriptures into the English language. It became fuel for the Protestant Reformation. And he translated Romans chapter 13, verse 1 this way. Listen to how he translates this. Let every soul submit himself unto the authority of the higher powers. There is no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. So think about the shift that has happened in our language over the course of those 500 years since he wrote that. This phrase that once referred to a Christian's call to see all of human power and authority being ordered Uh, being sustained and controlled by the power of God, and because of that, giving Christians confidence that they could submit to that power, it's now exclusively used in a negative way. It's used exclusively to express distrust or discontent or an unwillingness to submit to that authority. And we're continuing our our series in the book of Daniel this morning, and these last few verses of Daniel chapter 6, where we left off last week, they really illustrate what William Tyndale's translation of Romans 13 says explicitly. 
that the powers that are, the powers that be, are ordained of God. And they're not only ordained of God, but they're used by God to accomplish his purposes, his work in the world. So before we read that, just a quick review of where we left off. Daniel chapter 6 is this very well-known, famous account in Scripture of Daniel in the lion's den. So the Medo-Persian Empire, this new empire, has conquered Babylon. There's a new king on the throne, King Darius. He puts out this edict that says anyone who prays uh, to a god or to anyone other than me is going to be thrown into the lion's den. Uh, Daniel has risen already to the highest levels of leadership in this new empire, but the other leaders around him set this trap. Darius puts this law into effect. Daniel continues doing what he always does and prays to God. He's thrown in the lion's den. God shows up, shuts the mouth of the lions, and actually, as we saw last week, Darius has like a a far worse night than Daniel does. He's the one who doesn't eat. He's the one who can't sleep. He has a far worse night. The next day, these other leaders who had set a trap for Daniel, they themselves are thrown into the lion's den. And not only them, Persians were ruthless people. They threw in their wives and their children as well. And they're all killed by the lions in the lion's den. So that's where we pick this up in Daniel chapter 6. I'm going to read uh, verses 25 through 28 for the end of the chapter there. Then King Darius wrote to all the peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, Peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion, people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. For he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. So this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. This is God's word. Let me pray for us. God, we need the reminders that you put in Scripture. We need the truth that you reveal to us in Scripture. It's not only true, it's helpful, it's practical, it's relevant to our lives today. And for those of us who struggle to trust you in the midst of the different realms of power and authority that we have to submit to in life, we need examples like Daniel, and we need deeper confidence that you really are the one who is reigning, that it's your kingdom that endures, that you're the one who is living. So I pray this morning that through your word you would work that truth deeply into our hearts, that our eyes would be open, that our ears would be open, uh, that you might just move by your spirit in our, in our lives to give us increasing confidence that you're on your throne, that you're reigning. We're grateful that you are, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So Daniel chapter 6 uh, is really a chapter of two proclamations. Two proclamations, both by King Darius. The first one is all about his own supremacy. So Daniel goes to the lion's den in the first place, because he violates Darius' proclamation, his law, that people shouldn't pray to anybody but him. But then by the very end of this chapter, what we just read here this morning, Darius says something very different than that. His second proclamation is all about not his own supremacy, but the supremacy of God, the God of Daniel. Okay, why that sudden and drastic shift in his perspective? It's because he has this really sobering moment of realization. Darius rules the most powerful kingdom that exists in the world at the time. And yet, he's limited. He's finite. He's temporary. 
He can't even overturn his own law. You know, he wants to save Daniel, but he can't even overturn his own law. And yet then he sees God show up and shut the mouth of a lion, multiple lions, to save him. So he makes this second proclamation. It says, To all the peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth. Okay, now that's definitely an exaggeration. It's hyperbole. But it's a little bit scary how slight of an exaggeration that actually is. It's estimated that 50 million people lived under the reign of the Persian Empire. And that at its peak, the Persian Empire ruled 44% of the people who lived on the planet at the time. 44%. We can't even fathom that today. The Guinness Book of World Records says that's actually the most powerful, pervasive kingdom, at least in terms of percentage of people that it ruled, ever to exist in the history of the world. So it's a huge number of people. It's a huge amount of influence, even by today's standards. And look at what Darius, at the end of the chapter, uses that influence for. You know, overnight, literally overnight, a pagan king becomes one of the most prolific evangelists in the history of the world. He calls the people of the empire, all these people under his domain, to tremble in fear before the God of Daniel. And it's because he realizes that unlike him, God endures. God is the one who's living. His kingdom will never be destroyed. Now, we learn a lot from the book of Daniel. There's a lot of themes in this book. This is the central theme to the book of Daniel. It's that in line with or in spite of the course of events of the history of the world, God's kingdom endures. That's the main point of the book of Daniel. In line with or in spite of the course of events in the history of the world, God's kingdom endures. God is working and reigning over it and in the midst of it and through all of it. Like Romans 13.1 says, like William Tyndale's translation, there is no power but of God and the powers that be, any power that exists in any realm whatsoever, they're ordained of God. Now, if that were actually true, and I think it is, but if we actually believe that, if we actually believe that that was true, what would our lives look like in light of it? I'm going to suggest two things this morning, and we'll spend the rest of our time looking at that. Because God's kingdom will never be destroyed, two things. One, we should pray for and serve those who are in power. And then two, we should pursue positions of influence. Pray for and serve those people who are in power and pursue positions of influence. So first, let's talk about the first one. Because God's kingdom will never be destroyed, we pray for and we serve people who are in power. Now, all of us are prone to make one of two errors when it comes to our relationships to people in power. Okay, it's a generalization, but we all skew one direction or the other. All of us are either more yes men or no men when it comes to relationships to people in power. Some of us are naturally yes men. You know, we, we blindly follow and give affirmation and approval to the people who, who are in power. Others of us are no men. We're contrarians. We're opposed to and oppositional toward and averse to people in power. But here's the thing. The reign of God frees us from both of these things. It frees us from both of those things because it changes the source of our hope. It changes the source of our hope. If our hope were in human power and people in power, then our hope would flourish when the quote-unquote right people were in power, however you would define quote-unquote the right people. 
And when those people were in power, we were prone to be, to be yes men. We actually might be afraid to be contrarian because our hope is all put in them. We can't, they can't fail. We don't want to oppose them for any reason. So we become yes men. But at the, on the other hand, our hope would be crushed when the wrong people, quote unquote, the wrong people are in power. Then we need to be contrarians. We need to reject everything and fight everything. Because there can't possibly be anything good when the wrong person's in that position. But if God is reigning, and our hope is in Him, rather than people or systems of power, then we're actually free to genuinely pray for, to genuinely serve people who are in power. Neither yes men nor no men. Now even though we don't have to put our hope in human power, I think we often do anyway. I think we often do. So, as I'm sure will be no shock to you, the Supreme Court made a few decisions this week about the Affordable Care Act, about gay marriage in particular. And depending on your views, some of you have been more crushed by that than you should be. Some of you have been more crushed by that than you should be. Like, your hope is lost. It's hanging on by a thread because of the decisions that were passed down this week. Others of you, perhaps... Your hope is, is alive again in a way that it wasn't before Friday's decisions. Either way, in either direction, we put too much hope in what human systems of authority say, including people like the Supreme Court. Right? Think about what would have happened if the decision was reversed. The people who are prone to be crushed right now would be elated, and the people who are elated right now would be crushed if the decision was the other way around. Either way, it's because we put so much hope in what a human authority says in that moment. Now, what do the Supreme Court rulings change? What do they change? On the one hand, they change a lot. They change a lot. Thousands of couples in our country who couldn't get married Thursday can, since Friday, now get married. And those marriages are also recognized across state boundaries. It's no longer up to each state to decide that. It's very related to this. It's not exactly related to Daniel 6, but I think it's worth speaking about for just a moment. Based on what I see in Scripture, what I believe to be the revealed will and word of God, um, I don't see a, a sexual expression, sexual activity between partners of the same sex as honoring to God. I can't get to that spot when I use the Bible and Scripture as my reference point. At the same time, let me say this. All of us, are broken and sinful people. And sexuality is a place where all of us evidence that brokenness and evidence corruptions of what God has given as a good gift. We do it in a thousand different ways. Each of us are prone to some of those and not prone to others of those. But God, in his design, in his kindness, has designed, has redeemed one specific outlet where sexual human, act, human sexual activity is, is called good, is called honoring to him, And it's this covenantal relationship, this covenantal bond between a man and a woman that God calls marriage. So, though I have friends who are gay, though I genuinely love people who are gay, and though I have compassion on people who are gay because I know my own brokenness, including in in my own brokenness and my own sexuality, where I'm grateful to God that I have an outlet for that in marriage that's redeemed, that he calls honoring, and I don't see that in Scripture for people who have a a same-sex orientation. I have compassion because of that. But because I have love, even though I have love and compassion, I, I can't and I won't marry a couple 
of the same sex. I would not marry a man and a man and a woman and a woman. And in light of these rulings, I don't know what that means. I don't know what that's going to mean for me in five years, ten years, twenty years. Public opinion has changed so rapidly on this issue that I don't think it's crazy to think that in another decade or so, uh, it's going to affect the way that credentials are done for people like me. Who will I be allowed to marry, or what will that look like? I think that's going to change. Um, will there be lawsuits based on discrimination? Probably, somewhere. Um, will there be labels placed on people like me that I'm, I'm part of a hate group? Maybe. That might be where we're going from here. We can't know for sure. So on the one hand, here's the point, Friday's rulings, they change a lot and probably will change a lot more in time. On the other hand, and more importantly, Friday's rulings change absolutely nothing. They change absolutely nothing. God is on his throne today, just like he was yesterday, just like he was the day before, just like he has been every day since anything that existed was. And this is where Daniel has so much to teach us. Because think about the kind of change that he lived through, the regime change. He's, he lives at these epicenters of human power, Jerusalem and then Babylon. He serves as the right hand of the king in two different empires. He sees laws come and go, and people come and go, and kingdoms rise and fall. And though it were, if it were up to him, Persia and Babylon would never come to power. You know, he's exiled by them forcibly from his home. So if it was up to him, they would never come to power. But even in spite of that, he spends a lifetime doing two things. Faithfully worshiping his God and faithfully serving the powers that be. He never compromises his devotion to God, nor does he stop serving the very leaders who have conquered his people and exiled them. He serves them even when it's hazardous to his own life. We have two examples in the book of Daniel where he's on death row. And both of those times he's delivered, and he goes right back to serving the people who are in power. Okay, how do you do that? How do you do that if you're Daniel? That's actually a question that we should ask and start to come up with a good answer to as Christians because the idea of praying for and serving powers that are potentially hazardous or hostile to Christians is becoming less and less theoretical for us in the West. It's already the case in other parts of the world and has been for centuries. The answer for Daniel is that he has complete confidence that people in power are participants in the work of God. People who are in power are participants of the, in the work of God. And that's actually true whether or not they're willing. Whether or not they're willing. Some people are in power are willing participants. And some people are unwilling participants. But that really, at the end of the day, is the only decision that people in power get to make. Whether they're going to be willing participants or unwilling participants. Because it's God who endures, as Darius says here, because it's God's kingdom that has no end, People in power are going to participate in God's plan for the world. Now, the Bible and other historical accounts all name Cyrus, the Persian, as the king of this empire that conquered Babylon. So we read Daniel 6, and it's really not altogether clear who Darius is. I'm not really sure who this guy is. He's either a really high-ranking official that Cyrus puts on the throne of Babylon to just rule that particular area, or, and this is actually more likely, it's just another name for Cyrus himself. He was known as Darius to a certain group of people and Cyrus to another, or maybe somewhere in the course of some years he changed names. We're not sure. It seems like that's the more likely, the, the more likely case. 
So verse 28 there is probably actually better translated as Daniel prospered during the reign of Cyrus, or sorry, during the reign of Darius, that is the reign of Cyrus the Persian. Okay, little sidebar there. But what we know about Cyrus is a lot more than what we know about Darius. Long before Cyrus conquered Babylon, God had appointed him to be an instrument of his work in the world. Same thing was true of Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. From a purely human point of view, these two kings were just creating an empire for themselves. They were conquering people, growing their territory, building an empire. But behind the scenes, God was using them the whole time as instruments of his justice, as instruments of his work in the world. So when Babylon had accomplished all the purposes that God had for it, God raised up Cyrus, God raised up this Persian empire to displace Babylon. And not only to displace it, but to actually bring an end to the exile of God's people away from their homeland. It was predicted long before it happened. And this is what's crazy. Though he's a pagan king, though Cyrus is a pagan king, the prophet Isaiah calls Cyrus a shepherd of God. The prophet Isaiah calls Cyrus God's anointed. These are titles that are usually referred, reserved for people like Jesus. He calls Cyrus shepherd of God and anointed. And then the end of 2 Chronicles records Cyrus's proclamation. He lets all of the exiles return. He says, you can go back to your homeland. I know you've been forcibly removed. You can go back and you can rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. So because God lives and endures, because people in power are, whether willing or unwilling, participating in the work of God, we can pray for, we can serve those in power. And, and what's beautiful about it is, in certain moments, we get to see people who are unwilling participants become willing participants. And Darius is an example of that. He starts as this unwilling participant, proclaiming to people that they can't pray to anybody but him, and he ends the chapter as one of the best evangelists in the history of the world, telling people throughout his kingdom to fear and tremble before the God of Daniel. Quick example of this. Um, We get to see this play out in real life. Occasionally we get to see people who aren't Christians, who maybe reject Jesus and who he is, still be used by God to do great things for the kingdom of God. One example that always has stood out to me, uh, the church that I was on staff at in Kansas City had a partnership with ministries in Hungary. And in the history of that ministry, going back into the 90s, um, after communism fell and the influence of communism dissipated in Hungary, all kinds of sexual diseases started spreading around that country. They weren't prepared for it. So the, the government went to certain organizations and even certain religious organizations and said, help us. Like, we've got this huge issue on our hands. Um, te- help, help teach people in our country how to handle this so we don't have this huge spread of disease. The National AIDS Director uh, actually went to initially the Catholic Church, and the Catholic Church, with some of their stances, would only teach abstinence. So he moved on and started uh, looking at different campus ministries and Christian ministries. He ended up connecting with uh, Campus Crusade in Hungary, And Campus Crusade, through the providence of God, ended up educating teachers, public school teachers, who then were educating all the students of the nation of Hungary in sex ed curriculum. And as part of that sex ed curriculum, they got to share why they believed certain things about sex, which was rooted in a Judeo-Christian worldview, which was rooted in the finished work of Jesus. They got to, in public school classrooms, connect 
human sexuality to the gospel. And because this National AIDS director, who was not himself a Christian, saw a huge need and saw willing people in the kingdom of God who wanted to help. That guy, the National AIDS director for Hungary, he's like a, like a more modern-day example of Cyrus, king of Persia. He doesn't himself worship that God, but he opens the door for many other people too. And that's what we long for. That's what we long to see happen. So we pray for and we serve those people who are in power. Now, second, because God's kingdom will never be destroyed, we also pursue positions of influence. We pursue positions of influence. Now, it's really important to say this up front. Power and influence are really slippery. And they're really dangerous. Because we have all kinds of conscious and subconscious motives for wanting to be in positions of power and influence. And left to ourselves, those motives are self-serving in some way. They're all self-serving in some way left to ourselves. But if God is the one who's ultimately reigning, if his kingdom will never be destroyed, that means that there's actually a place for people to exercise power and influence with motives that are good and pure, that point to God's reign rather than just their own. And it means that you and I and others can be these willing participants in the plan of God from any position at all, but including those positions of power and influence. Okay, now let's be honest. We struggle with this. We struggle with this. We either want the influence for the wrong reason, or we don't want the influence for the wrong reason. See, there can be bad motives for avoiding positions of influence, too. Being in a position of influence, a position of power, it's hard. It's hard, especially if the environment is hostile in some way. Being in a position of influence is costly. Maybe we're even tempted in that moment then to put some kind of spiritual spin on this. right? We don't want those positions of influence and power because we're humble. We're more humble than that. That's, not, I, that's just me, right? You guys don't do that. And while it's true that Jesus turns, you heard Steve Huber a couple weeks ago talk about this, it's totally true. Jesus turns the concept we have of power on its head. You know, the last shall be first, the first shall be last. Totally true. Also, all over the New Testament are examples of men and women of influence who come to repent and believe in Jesus. And you know where they go back to? Right to those places of influence. So you've got military commanders in the Roman Empire of all places. You've got business owners You've got civic leaders who come to faith in Jesus and they go right back to those places of influence. So here's the thing. It's not virtuous to shirk, to stiff arm the privilege and responsibility of influence if God opens a door for you to have it. It's not a virtue. It's not humility. That's actually false humility. That's actually fear is what that is. If we've been given gifts, if we've been given opportunities for influence, it would actually be wrong of us to hide. That wouldn't be good stewardship of our lives and our opportunities. So if it's, if it's possible, and it is, because we've seen this, if it's possible to be willing participants in the plan of God, then we pursue those places where we can steward those gifts, where we can steward those opportunities well. Now, I've wrestled with a tiny little microcosm of this in the grand scheme of things. I've wrestled with this, though, over the past several years. Uh, two things about planting a church and being a pastor— this chair that I sit in, I have more influence than I've ever had in my life before. Also, 
my life's under a microscope more than I've experienced anywhere else in my life before. Both of those things are true at exactly the same time. And there are times, often, where I'm acutely aware that it would be so much easier to not be in a position like that. To not have my decisions, or my leadership, or my life, the good, bad, and ugly of it, on display for everyone to have an opinion about. It's a difficult place. And I have, in the grand scheme of things, so little influence. Like, I barely have any influence. Think about people that have positions of true and greater influence. Think about people like Daniel, who's one of the highest leaders in the dominant world power at the time. Exponentially multiplied. You got that influence, but with it, you're subject to that. The world, though, and not just the church, the world needs Christians in positions of influence. It needs people who are willing participants in the plan of God with the right motives to live out their devotion to God from those places. There's a sociologist at the University of Virginia named James Davison Hunter, and he wrote a great book a couple years ago called To Change the World. If you're into sociology and cultural dynamics and Christianity, uh, most of you are probably into Christianity, or at least interested if you're here. If you're into those things, it's a great book to explore. In that book, he talks about the need for what he calls faithful presence, the faithful presence of Christians in the world. And he even specifically talks about the need for faithful presence of Christians in positions of power and influence. Because culture rarely, if ever, changes from the bottom up. It almost always changes from the top down. Even if it looks like it's changing from the bottom up, that's organized probably by somebody from the top down. Because that's true, Christians need to be in places of influence. He says this, To be obedient to Christ's instruction to go into all the world will inevitably result in some who will exercise varying degrees of leadership in these different spheres of social life. Some will even operate in in or close to the center of institutions of social, cultural, and political life. As such, they will have disproportionate privilege, access, and influence that the majority of people simply don't have. To acknowledge and to encourage this is not elitist, as some might say, but rather an obedience to, God's, to Christ's directive to go into all the world. So here's the takeaway from that. If God gives you the opportunity to be in a position of influence, then be there. Then be there and do it well. And do it without compromise and do it with faithfulness to God. Daniel is an incredibly relevant example for us specifically in Liberty Church because I think I've seen that we have here a disproportionate number of people who are influential or who have who could be potential influencers in our society. You know, we're not the average cross-section of the people that we live amongst here. So what does it look like to steward that well? What's it look like to live in light of that? Of course, without neglecting Jesus' call to the marginalized and to the poor, not actually becoming elitist, but to steward the influence and the potential influence that we might have. At the same time, if you're not given the opportunity to be in a position of great influence, that doesn't make you any less important. doesn't make you any less valuable. Because the kingdom of God endures, each of us can be willing participants in God's plan to the greatest extent that we have the opportunity to be. You know, whether that's influencing one person or influencing thousands. But we pursue 
to the degree that God gives us the opportunity, positions of influence. Okay, let's bring these things together. In both of these things, serving and praying for those in power and also pursuing positions of influence, there's a common thread. There's a common thread. And it's this. It's because God's kingdom endures, because it will never be destroyed, trade your comfort, trade your control, and embrace the care of God instead. Trade your comfort and trade your control and embrace the care of God. See, in each of our hearts, there's this competition of kingdoms. There's this competition and clash of kingdoms. There's our own kingdom, characterized by our own comfort and characterized by our desire to control everything. And then there's God's kingdom, which is the exact opposite of our comfort. You know, and, it, and it fights against every inclination that we have to control things. It's beyond our ability to control And just like with Babylon, just like with Persia, when kingdoms collide, the kingdom of the living and enduring God wins out every single time. Every single time. So to embrace that, to live in light of that, that's freedom. That's freedom. When we live our lives focused on our personal mini-kingdoms, we start to live every live our lives characterized by fear. We measure all of these decisions in life based on what that's going to mean for my comfort or what that's going to mean for my ability to control. But to embrace the reign and the care of God is really to step into an existence where fear evaporates. And fear evaporates because there's no way you can lose. There's no way you can lose. To embrace the kingdom of God means you're caught up into his work and because he's God, he carries that through to completion. So the only way to lose is to reject the kingdom of God. What would our lives look like if the one guiding factor was that God is really on his throne? What would our lives look like if the one guiding factor was that God was really on his throne, that his kingdom was eternal, that nothing could change that? You know, what would your relationship with human power look like? How would that change if you actually believed that God was on his throne? What positions of influence would you pursue if you believed that, rather than hiding out in fear? The call, the idea, the call that God would have on us is for our lives to increasingly proclaim that he is really on his throne. And when you live like that, when you live as though God is really on his throne, sometimes you'll be delivered and rescued. That's what King Darius proclaims here. That's Daniel's story, and it's a great story. Daniel prospers during his 70 years in exile, both under the Babylonian kingdom and then under the Persian kingdom. Other times you live like this, you live like God is really on his throne, and it will cost you everything up to and including your own life. In Hebrews 11, which actually makes reference to Daniel, it's this passage about great men and women who live like this is actually true. They live as though God is actually on his throne. And there are two outcomes in Hebrews chapter 11. There are those who are delivered and conquer kingdoms, it says. There are also those who are tortured, mocked, and killed. Now, you and I can't possibly know what will be the outcome of our life. Delivered and conquering kingdoms, tortured, mocked, or killed, or somewhere in between. But we can have an even greater confidence than the men and women of Hebrews 11 had. Why? Because they had that kind of confidence before they'd even seen the fulfillment of it, before they even received the promise. And the last verse of Hebrews 11 often gets overlooked, but it says this, God has provided something better for us 
What is it? It's the salvation secured by Jesus. It's the salvation secured by Jesus. In the death and resurrection of Jesus, we see God secure the victory of his kingdom once and for all. And we see him deal the death blow to the worst kinds of powers that are. The power of Satan, the power of sin, the power of death itself. But that happens, that work of Jesus happens through and in spite of the powers that be, the powers that were at the time. Even the powers that conspired to put Jesus to death did so according to the plan of God. So you've got Pilate who says, Jesus, I have the power to set you free. And Jesus responds and he says, you only have that power because it's been given to you from God. And you have Peter a couple weeks after that preaching to the Jewish leaders saying, hey, everything you did, including killing Jesus, that was all done according to the definite plan and the foreknowledge of God. So there is no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. And if those powers are accomplishing God's purposes in something as scandalous as putting the Son of God to death, if that's still God working in something that scandalous, then surely there is nothing that happens outside the power and the plan of God. And what Darius glimpsed in part and then proclaimed to his kingdom, we have seen the fulfillment of in Jesus. Jesus is the living God. Jesus endures forever. It's Jesus' kingdom that will never be destroyed. It's his dominion that will be to the end. So may we not neglect such a great salvation, but rather in light of it, because, because God's kingdom will never be destroyed. May we pray for and serve those who are in power. May we pursue positions of influence. And may we actually live our lives like God is on his throne, because truly he is on his throne. Amen. Let me pray. God, we are grateful to you that you are on your throne. We even got to sing that great truth this morning. Jesus, Son of God, you have been lifted up first to the cross to destroy the power of Satan, sin, and death. You've been lifted up again to the right hand of the Father. You will reign forever. Your kingdom endures forever. It has no end. And therefore, we can live this life with hope in you regardless of what exists around us, regardless of the powers that be and how cordial and affirming or how hostile they are to us. We pray, God, that you would work in us, particularly in the cultural moment in which we live, the ability to to do what Daniel did, to faithfully serve you wholeheartedly, all of our devotion pointed at you, but also to faithfully serve the powers that be because we've got confidence that they don't exist apart from your control. Give us steadfastness in that. Give us hope in that. And as we come to this table this morning, we're reminded that we have that hope because of the finished work that you have accomplished. And we're grateful to you for your body and your blood given for us, the victory of your kingdom secured. We pray that in your name.